Good morning, church. Okay. The reading is out of the book of Acts from verse 1 to 22. Out of the books of Acts 4 from verse 1 to 22. The priest and the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees came up to Peter and John while they were speaking to the people. They were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. They seized Peter and John and because it was evening, they put them in chain until the next day. But many who heard the message believed, and the number of men grew to about 5,000. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, were there, and so were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of the people, if we are being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this. You and all people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. He is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. When they saw the courage of Peter and John and realized that they were unschooled, ordinary men, they were astonished and they took note that these men had been with Jesus. But since they could see the man who had been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. So they ordered them to withdraw from the Sanhedrin and then conferred together. What are we going to do with these men? They asked. Everybody living in Jerusalem knows they have done an outstanding miracle, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn these men to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Then they called them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourself whether it is right in God's sight to obey you rather than God, for we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. 
They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. For the man who was miraculously healed was over 40 years old. This is the word of God. Thank you, Faye, very much indeed. Please do keep your Bible open at that passage. And I'm going to be referring to a number of verses in it as we go through it together. But first, um, let's ask for the Lord's help. Our gracious God, we thank you for giving us a clear and living word. We pray that you would help us according to our need that you would remove the barriers that prevent us from hearing, from trusting, and obeying. And we ask that your word to us this morning would do us good and cause us to honour you. In Jesus' name. Amen. Well, on Sunday mornings, as you know, we're working our way through Luke's account of the early church, And over the last couple of weeks, we've read about a very significant number of people becoming Christians. Uh, Today, of course, we usually see people getting converted in ones and twos, but in the early church, it was very different. Remember on the day of Pentecost, we saw 3,000 people turning to Christ after just one sermon. But uh, in our passage this morning, there is some serious opposition. Um, There's some serious pushback to the Christian message. And of course, that's much more like our situation today, isn't it? Because we know that today there's plenty of opposition to the claims of Christ. Whether the opposition is uh, violent or polite, whether it's uh, secular or religious, there is plenty of opposition to the claims of Christ. Now, to put all of this in context, please remember that the big thing that Luke has been putting in front of us so far is that the risen Christ is alive. And he's doing his work in the world through his people. They're breaking free from their Jewish roots, they're preaching the gospel, and the results are stunning. Uh, One historian puts it like this, and I quote from him, within the space of 30 years after the death of Christ, the gospel had been carried to all parts of the known world. It had made its way over the most formidable barriers and secured such a hold in the imperial city of Rome as to make it certain that it would establish itself on the ruins of paganism. Now listen to this. All this was accomplished through unschooled Jewish fishermen. They had neither wealth, armies, nor allies. Except for Paul, they were men without learning, They were armed only with the power of God and were victorious only because Christ was their captain. Their success has never been accounted for 
by any other suggestion than that God did it, end quote. Now, as the uh, gospel spreads, the, the heart of the Christian message, the banner headline, if you like, is and always has been that Jesus Christ is Lord. And if Jesus is Lord, he's to be served. And uh, in our chapter, that truth is highlighted for us in, a, uh, in verse 12. Please just have another look at verse 12 with me. Where Peter says... Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Well, that's pretty clear, isn't it? Now, instead of promoting this message that Jesus is Lord, you and I, of course, are in danger of smothering it of keeping it secret, of keeping it within the limits of the conversation we have with one another in the church family. Because, of course, as we go about our business during the week with people of other faiths and other beliefs, it's very easy, isn't it, for us not to say, Jesus is Lord, but rather to say to ourselves, Everyone is entitled to their own opinion. After all, these people are usually our friends or our work colleagues, and often they have strong convictions about their faith position. And when we're with them, it's much easier to keep quiet than it is to say Jesus is Lord. And there's something else that stands in the way of us telling people about Jesus. Because before you and I even open our mouths, people are very quick to tell us about their objections to Christianity. They might say, well, okay, you know, what about those people who've never heard of Christ? Or we hear people say, well, perhaps Christianity is just a geographical phenomenon. So you believe what you believe because of where you were brought up. Or we find people who question whether, as a minority group, we have any right to say that Christ is the only way or that he's speaking for a loving God. And then, of course, there are other people who say, actually, the world does just fine without Christianity. Of course, these objections are increasingly common. And over time... They chip away, don't they, at our conviction that Jesus is Lord. And this kind of barrage of hostile questioning has caused many convinced Christians to be unsettled and to become less secure in their belief. Maybe there's somebody here like that this morning. And if that's you, perhaps you're not as sure as you used to be that Jesus is Lord. Perhaps you're not sure that it's a loving message. You might not even be sure that it's a necessary message. Well, Acts chapter 4 is for you because it is a wonderful picture of men who were utterly convinced that Jesus is Lord 
And they had no problem at all telling other people, even when those people were hostile. And I want us to feel the power of their witness this morning by looking at the chapter under three headings. The chapter actually divides very neatly into three sections. The first section I called an official interrogation. An official interrogation, verses 1 to 7. Now don't um, please underestimate the interrogation that Peter and John and the apostles are facing. Uh, You remember from last week that these apostles were used by Jesus to heal a man who now stands on his feet for the first time in 40 years. And this man is now walking and he's leaping and he's praising God. Unsurprisingly, the crowds have gathered and with the crowds come the leaders. And what a formidable group they were. Look at verses 1 and 2. The priests came. They came with the captain of the temple guard and the Sadducees. And verse 2 says these senior and influential men were greatly disturbed because the apostles were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead. Now look down to verse 5. The next day, the rulers, elders, and teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas, the high priest, was there. So were Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and the other men of the high priest's family. They had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them. By what power or what name did you do this? So have you got the picture? Every senior leader in Jerusalem was present for the hearing. What's their problem? Their problem is that by the time Peter and John are brought to trial, thousands of people are believing the gospel. It's exasperating for the Jewish leadership because the apostles' ministry is so very effective. And what's more, they were making these first-century Jewish leaders feel guilty for the death of Jesus. And then, of course, there were certain facts that simply wouldn't go away. Uh, For a start, uh, there was the healed man standing right in front of them. I don't know whether you agree with me, but I find verses 14 and 16 almost humorous. Look at verse 14. But since they could see the man who'd been healed standing there with them, there was nothing they could say. Well, of course. Verse 16. They said, everybody living in Jerusalem knows they've done an outstanding miracle and we can't deny it. On top of that, of course, there's the empty tomb. Uh, The authorities have been working overtime to try and find the body of Jesus. They haven't been able to do so. They've searched everywhere. So the leaders are frustrated. The Sadducees, there in verse 1, they didn't believe in resurrection. They were a wealthy lay movement. They were totally anti-supernatural. 
Uh, they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament. And as far as they were concerned, this preaching about resurrection was sheer nonsense. The Pharisees were also there. Uh, they did believe in resurrection. Uh, they believed in the great resurrection to come at the end of human history. But what upset them in verse 2 was the apostles' message that the resurrection was to be found in Jesus. You see, the apostles were simply repeating what Jesus said about himself. Do you remember? I am the resurrection. And in case you've forgotten, let me just remind you why this is so very important. If you want to sail from the shore of this world to the shore of the next world, it's no use sailing in the ship called Nice People. The ship called Nice People won't get you there. You need to be in the ship called Jesus Christ because he's alive. Uh, he's in the position of supreme power and authority in the universe. That's what Jesus himself taught and here the apostles are simply repeating what Jesus himself said. And as a result, uh, they're facing this national, serious, scary interrogation. And uh, the question they're being asked at the end of verse 7, you might like to look at that, is by what power or what name did you do this? Now, in my uh, preparation this week, I found myself asking whether one of the reasons why I don't always speak as boldly as I could or should about the greatness and the uniqueness of Jesus is because deep down inside, I'm afraid of trouble. But the apostles are not like that. Their courage and their concern for others is greater than their fear of trouble. So that's the first section. God's people faced an official interrogation. The second section is verses 8 to 14, which I've called a logical conclusion. A logical conclusion. Now this is the, the heart of the passage because it's here that the apostles are talking about the significance of the healing. What are they going to say about the healing? And uh, what they say in verse 10 is that this healing has taken place by the name of Jesus. Incidentally, there's absolutely nothing in Luke's account to suggest that this healing was meant to be the start of a healing ministry in the early church. Luke doesn't want us to be thinking like that. Now, as we saw last week, the healing of this man is actually a preview of a restored world. It's telling us that Jesus is alive and that he's calling all people to himself. So, uh, Peter stands up in verse 8 and filled with the Holy Spirit, he speaks very clearly and very powerfully. And of course, that reminds us, doesn't it, of what Luke says in his Gospel, that Jesus, do you remember this? Jesus promised his disciples 
that he would help them to speak when they were put on the spot and didn't have time to prepare. Do you remember that? Well, that's what's happening here. So verse 9, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, says, verse 9, if we're being called to account today for an act of kindness shown to a cripple and are asked how he was healed, then know this, you and all the people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead, that this man stands before you healed. So Peter moves, do you notice this? He moves straight from the healed man to Jesus. And he reminds them that Jesus is alive and he's still doing his work. He was crucified, he did die, but he's been raised. And now he's still doing his work in the world. And the healing of this man, you see, is basically a platform that gives the apostles an opportunity to speak. And when they speak, they don't really want to talk about the healed man. Do you notice that? They want to talk about Jesus, who's done the work. It's the crucified and risen Jesus they want to speak about. And I want to say to you, that when they do this, these apostles could not possibly be talking about anything more important. I wonder if you know just how important the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus are. And I say this, you see, because everybody you know is familiar with the idea that Jesus was crucified and rose. Everybody knows the message of Good Friday and Easter Sunday But very few people understand why Jesus was crucified and rose. How do we know that? Well, I suggest that we know it because if you talk to people who don't understand Christianity or perhaps who belong to a different faith or some other spirituality, they see no real reason for the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus. And when you take time to talk to these people about what they believe or their spirituality or the church that they go to or their spiritual journey, you'll very quickly discover that they don't actually care why Jesus died or what Jesus did. Because they only want to talk about what they're doing or what they're trying to do or what they're seeking to do. They don't actually care why Jesus died and rose. So we need to notice that Peter and John keep talking about the resurrection and the crucifixion. And you and I need to keep talking about these things because nobody gets eternal life without them. It's the crucifixion that makes it possible for a person to be forgiven and to stand before God free from condemnation. And it's the resurrection that opens the door leading to eternal life. And therefore, you and I need to say to people, if you want to know the future, you need to get to grips with the reason for the crucifixion and the resurrection. And if there's anybody listening to this, either here this morning or on the internet, who's in a total fog 
about Christianity and you really don't understand what it is we're talking about on Sunday mornings, it's making no sense to you at all, can I urge you to find out why Jesus died and why he rose? Because it's the key that explains everything. Well, that was Peter's message. He preached about the crucified and resurrected Messiah. And I find it interesting that, you know, when the Jews said to him, Peter, you're talking nonsense, uh, you're saying Jesus was the Messiah and we crucified the Messiah, well, what you're saying is ridiculous and deeply offensive. Because if the Messiah had come, there's absolutely no way we would have missed it. Uh, when they said that, Peter replied, verse 11, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected, which has become the capstone. He's quoting Psalm 118, and he's saying not only was the coming of Messiah predicted, but so also was your rejection of the Messiah predicted. So now you need to rethink him and you need to return to him because he's alive and well. Now, friends, verse 12, can I suggest, is one of the most important and one of the most forceful verses in all of Scripture. Salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. So notice again how Peter moves from the healing of the lame man by Jesus to what everybody needs, which is salvation by Jesus. Everybody needs salvation. And Peter says it's found in no one else. I've told some of you before that as a young Christian, I was uh, discipled by a man called Vijay, and uh, Vijay was raised in India, and for 36 years of his life, he was a devout Hindu, not just a cultural Hindu, but a practicing, serious-minded Hindu. He believed, therefore, in thousands of gods. He trained as a marine engineer in the mid-1960s. Uh, he moved to London to work in marine insurance at Lloyd's. One day, by accident, he found himself uh, in a Christian church service in London's financial district. And uh, by the time he realized where he was, the crowd was so enormous he couldn't get out. So he had to sit through the entire sermon all the way to the bitter end. And uh, in the course of the sermon, he was astonished to hear that Jesus Christ died not just for Christians, but for Hindus and Muslims. And in that sermon, he realized that Jesus had done for him what all of his religious observance had never been able to do. Wipe away his sin and give him peace with God and peace in his heart permanently. Now, friends, in light of that, I want to ask you to put your mind on verse 10. This is really important. Because you see, the basis for a gospel conversation between a Christian and a Hindu or a Muslim or anybody else is that something unique and wonderful 
has happened in history. This is not philosophical speculation. Jesus Christ of Nazareth was crucified, but God raised him from the dead. Now, you see, God will at some point give you an opportunity to tell a friend what Jesus Christ means to you. In my own best moments, I wonder how anybody could possibly turn away from somebody so very wonderful. And I hope there are times in your own Christian life where you find yourself thinking, I am just so thankful for Jesus. I don't understand how anybody could turn away from him. Because the Christian life is not theory or philosophy. It's a relationship with the most wonderful person in the whole universe. Now, friends, while that is true, and it is true, the reason that everyone has an obligation to think seriously about Jesus Christ is because he was crucified and he was raised. And, you see, those historical facts are calling the whole world to wake up and take notice. And therefore, I suggest that one of the questions that we need to ask people when we get into these conversations is, okay, well, what is essential about your faith? What does your faith say I must do? And then, why must I do it? And I tell you what, they won't have an answer. But you see, we're able to say, aren't we, to somebody that we really care about, there is something you must do because there's someone who impacted history. He died, he rose. The world knows about it. It's of global significance. It's of eternal significance. It is the door from this world to the next. There isn't another one. And you and I have an obligation to point people to Jesus. Well, that's what Peter says. Uh, the global event of verse 10 gives rise to the appeal of verse 12, you must be saved. And before we rush on, I just want to say a couple of quick things about verse 12. First, according to verse 12, salvation is necessary. It says we must be saved. Now, I know perfectly well that it sounds very old-fashioned these days to talk about getting saved. As far as the outsider is concerned, that kind of talk is practically meaningless. But the fact is, everyone does need to be saved from their sins. They need to be saved from judgment before they meet the judge. And when people say to us, what is essential about Christianity, we need to say, you must be saved. Then also in verse 12, notice that salvation is controlled. I don't know whether that's the right word. I couldn't think of a better one. It's owned. It's monopolized by Jesus. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. You see, we've got to echo, haven't we, what Jesus said about himself. He is the way. 
And we don't do that because we're arrogant. We do it because we're humble. We've seen that we can't do this for ourselves. And we've discovered that Jesus is reliable. So we sit very humbly under what he says and we humbly tell other people what Jesus says. And the reason we do that is because he's on the throne. He deserves our obedience and our worship. But we also do this with compassion because we want people to know that there is no salvation without Jesus. And if you say to me, well, you know what, I'm not really sure that a person needs Christ, that is going to sound to me very much like you are not converted. Because, you see, once you know that you need Christ in order to be saved, well, you know perfectly well everybody needs Christ in order to be saved. It's a logical conclusion. Now, you see, when we get into these conversations, you and I don't have to claim that as Christian people we've got perfect knowledge. We haven't. We're not God. What we are saying is that we have reasonable faith and a reasonable truth. And we don't even need the person we're talking to to agree in order for us to stay friends. We don't need that necessarily. We just need to have patient, kind, faithful conversation. So, you got the picture, salvation is necessary, verse 12. It's controlled by Jesus, verse 12. And notice this, verse 12 also says salvation is given. It's a gift. There's no other name under heaven given to men by which we must be saved. Sounds very like what we read in John's Gospel, doesn't it? Where we're told that God so loved the world that he gave his son. Now that's significant, you see, because most faiths, most other faiths, take from people. They demand our performance. It was almost the first thing I learned from Vijay. The gods that he worshipped as a Hindu were very demanding indeed. But the Christian message is that God gives you new life. You receive his son as a free gift. Salvation is necessary, it's controlled, it's given, and salvation is global. There is no other name under heaven by which we must be saved. No other name. I'm sure you've worked this out. Jesus is not an Anglican. Uh, Jesus is not exclusively white. He's not exclusively Western. I was in London uh, recently, and on Sunday mornings there are more Africans in London churches than there are Europeans, praise the Lord. Now, of course, Jesus is not exclusively African either, but the difference is that, as far as I could see, the majority of white folks who go to church in the UK occasionally think that faith in Jesus is an op optional lifestyle choice. And more often than not, it's the Africans who are telling them 
There's no other name given to men by which you must be saved. It's a logical conclusion. Lastly this morning, I want you to notice in the passage a cowardly verdict from verse 15 onwards. See, the authorities are now faced with a decision, aren't they? They're confronted by three things. They're confronted by a healed man, the risen Jesus, and a powerful message. The evidence is overwhelming. They don't actually know what to do with the evidence. It's undeniable. But they do have options. Uh, They could convert to Christianity. After all, many of their fellow Jews have already done it. Why don't they convert to Christianity? Well, perhaps in their case it might be too humiliating. Or they could tolerate Christianity and let it spread. But I think probably in context they would find that far too frustrating. Or they could persecute the Christians. But that would be unjust and it would be very unpopular. So verse 18 they announce a cowardly verdict. They call the apostles in once more. They command them not to speak any more in the name of Jesus. And that is cowardly because they're simply avoiding the issue, aren't they? They won't convert. They won't tolerate Christianity. They won't persecute, not for the time being at any rate. So they refuse to make a decision religious people. It's pathetic, isn't it? But you see, you and I know all about this, don't we? So many of our friends simply refuse to make a decision. So we do need to be praying all through this week for people coming to the seminar next Sunday afternoon, that they don't simply sit on the fence. Well, Peter and John know that the Sanhedrin is not the final authority in the universe. God is the final authority. So they refuse to obey, they insist on obeying Christ, and they stand on their right to speak, and they're willing to face the consequences. So these first century Jewish religious leaders are in a very tight corner, aren't they? I think one writer puts it brilliantly. He says this, They can arrest the apostles, but they can't arrest the gospel. Let me finish this morning with three one-sentence applications. First, ask God in your private prayers to save you from forgetting the foundation of God's mission. You see, if you believe that the death and resurrection of Jesus is important for you, then it's important for your neighbours, isn't it? If you believe the work of the apostles in preaching the gospel is important for you, it's important for your neighbours. So ask God to save you from forgetting the foundation of your faith. Second, ask God to save you from unbelief. Ask God to save you from the erosion of your conviction that Jesus is the only name under heaven 
by which we must be saved. Please do not let Acts chapter 4, verse 12 get erased from your brain. And lastly, ask God to help you become one of his people that God uses to say a word that helps someone think seriously about Jesus, not superficially. You might not be successful. In a sense, the apostles at the time were not successful. But they were faithful. So maybe you need to find something and put it in your pocket. Perhaps a little gospel tract, a little booklet, that you're ready to give to somebody this coming week. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the risen Lord Jesus who continues to work wonderfully in reaching people across the world with the message of salvation. We thank you for what he began with the apostles and is continuing to the present day. And we pray that you would make us in this church your representatives your ambassadors, your witnesses in helping people come to know the Lord Jesus through whom they must be saved. And we ask in his precious name. Amen. I noticed that uh, yesterday Alice put a, a lovely devotion on, I can't remember which, which um, WhatsApp group it was. We have so many at St. Barnabas. We always have more, more WhatsApp groups than we have people in church. But um, it was a very good devotion she put on, only six minutes, Sinclair Ferguson, um, on the call to confession passage from Romans that we're looking at in a moment. If you haven't listened to it yet, I do urge you to do so. Let's just take a moment before we come to the Lord's table to, to reflect on whether we've really heard the encouragement from the text this morning to be bold in proclaiming the truth in the face of